0: Evidence and Answers. Archaeological discoveries made public in recent years have given us new information about biblical events. There have been many important excavations taking place in the lands of the Bible. So you won't want to miss the conclusion to today's interview. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will be concluding his interview with biblical archaeologist, Dr. Edwin Yamauchi. Without delay, let's get right to it. Here's our host, Pat Zucran.
1: Well, Dr. Yamauchi, tell us in this next part of the show perhaps some of the most significant, maybe the top six most significant discoveries in biblical archaeology of modern times?
2: I would put it in number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls. These were discovered in 1947 by Bedouin shepherds uh, in a cave in Qumran. And the reason that's so significant is that prior to that discovery, we had only one small Papyrus called the Nash Papyrus of uh, early Hebrew text. Most people don't realize that the Hebrew Bible is dependent on one single codex called the Leningrad Codex, which dates to 1000 A.D. But the discovery at Qumran led to a cave, Cave One, which had seven manuscripts in jars, including two of the uh, Book of Isaiah. uh, Complete now. Most of the other fragments, most of the other manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible were fragmentary, but these are as early as 250 BC. So they are the they are a thousand years older than the uh, text, and they demonstrated that the Masoretes, those who copied the biblical text, were very careful in the way they copied. Of course, there are many minor variations, but uh, essentially the text was preserved. The second thing I would uh, put on the list is the discovery in 1945 of the Nag Hammadi Codices in Comte in Egypt. These contain about 50 different treatises that date to the uh, period after the 2nd century, and most notably the Gospel of Thomas, which contains sayings of Jesus. Now, these are not canonical sayings, but the Reflect a heretical movement called Gnosticism, but they've been much in the news and uh, been uh, hailed by by some uh, scholars, such as Elaine Pagels of Princeton University, as presenting an alternative view of Christianity. So this has revived interest in the post New Testament period.
1: Now, why would that be significant for Christians to say to study the Nag Hammadi discovery?
2: Well, because. It challenges their views about the idea that the canonical scriptures represent the one and only uh, legitimate interpretation of Jesus. The Gnostics were influenced by Hellenistic philosophy like Platonism, and uh, they they were clearly a the major threat to early Christianity in the second and third centuries. They were combated by people like uh, Tertullian. Who uh, wrote against Marcion? So it's important for early church history, more than for the first century uh, period.
1: Yeah, I think the only reference we had of the Gnostics were the writings of the church fathers. And in Nag Hammadi, there we got to see the original texts or, or the text themselves from written from the Gnostics.
2: That's right.
1: All right. Well, what would be number three on your list? There are there
2: are, are several interesting discoveries that there both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, number three, uh, probably the Rosetta Stone that was discovered by Napoleon soldiers in Egypt. That led to the decipherment of Egyptian by Champollion, a brilliant young Frenchman, and that opened up the whole range of Egyptian texts. There's also the comparable copying of the Behistun inscription in the Zagros Mountains uh, that led to the decipherment of Cuneiform. There's also the the Amarna tablets that were discovered in Egypt. These were written in Cuneiform, and they come from the reigns of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV in in the 14th century BC, and they demonstrate that Jerusalem was an important city at that time. This is against the minimalist Interpretations of some uh, Israeli scholars like Israel Finkelstein, who adopted what's called a, a late phonology. And that goes along with the discovery recently by Elath Mazar, the granddaughter of Benjamin Mazar, who's been excavating in Jerusalem, and she found a cuneiform tablet that comes from this very same period. There's also the discovery of the Ugaritic texts from Rosh Shamra on the coast of Syria, and these are alphabetic cuneiform text that my teacher, Cyrus Gordon, worked on, and they provide us with Canaanite texts that illuminate the worship of Baal and Astarte, mentioned in the Old Testament, and also provide parallels to the Hebrew Psalms. There's the discovery and publication, as I've already mentioned, of the House of David text. Recently, there have been discoveries in Jordan, of 10th century copper mines by Thomas Levy of the New San Diego. And these confirm the uh, references to Solomon's uh, ability to mine copper in the 10th century. Skeptics had argued that Solomon, that Israel at the time of Solomon, was was still not a a fully functioning uh, state capable of such large-scale operations as mining operations. So one could go on and on.
1: How about the uh, discovery of the Code of Hammurabi?
2: Yes, that I would put certainly at one of the the top discoveries. This was discovered by the French in Susa about the turn of the century. This is a large basalt stone with the image of Hammurabi uh, and Marduk up at the top, and then a long list of uh, cuneiform laws um, from the old Babylonian period, which are parallel to many of the laws found in the Old Testament, such as the law of the goring ox.
1: Yes, and what did the Code of Hammurabi affirm regarding biblical history?
2: Well, the Code of Hammurabi has some close parallels with the biblical law code, and it shows that such laws, such case laws, which begin with uh, Shuma Awilum if a man did such and such, are very similar to that time and culture of the, the time. That is, Abraham lived about the time of Hammurabi. Hammurabi lived, uh, reigned from 1792 to 1750 B.C. And yet there are some interesting differences between biblical law and the, the law code Hammurabi. Hammurabi. Uh, The slave, the wardroom in the Babylonian society was considered a thing and an object, and uh, killing a slave was not considered murder, as it was in the Hebrew uh, uh, text.
1: I see. And it was a few decades ago, weren't skeptics skeptical that law codes that are seen in the Old Testament, especially during the time of Moses, really did not exist at that time, but it was the Hammurabi discovery that really affirmed that this kinds of law code did indeed exist, and it would be consistent with the time of that culture? Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, we hear a lot about another text. I, I believe it's the Enuma Elish. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that one.
2: Well, the Enuma Elish means went from the above. It's a creation epic of the Babylonians, and there are some similarities and some uh, differences. One of the Argued similarities is the opening lines of, of Genesis, which says, "Bereshit bara Elohim, That is, that Hebrew text is usually translated, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." The Enuma Elish says, "When in the beginning," a conditional phrase. And the Jewish Publication Society translation, for example, was influenced by that to render the opening lines of Genesis as a conditional sentence. Now, that's hugely important because if it's a conditional sentence, it doesn't tell us anything about the absolute beginning. But the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, takes it in the absolute sense of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there are striking differences between the pagan mythology of uh, the Babylonian creation epic and the the Bible. In the Babylonian creation epic, which was designed to exalt Marduk, the god of Babylon, Marduk is a champion of the younger gods who rebel against the older gods. The older gods don't like the younger gods because they're making too much noise. They want to destroy the younger gods. There's a epic battle between Marduk and Tiamat, who is the personification of waters. And some have seen in the Hebrew word Tehom, which is translated Abyss in Genesis, a uh, connection to Tiamat. But although those two words are uh, Related uh, linguistically. Uh, they're different grammatically. Uh, Tehom and Tiamat are quite different. Tiamat is a personification of a goddess and so forth. But in the resulting battle, Marduk kills Tiamat and cuts her body into two. And from the two parts of her body, he creates heaven and earth. So this is a completely pagan mythological rendering of creation. Now, some scholars think that the Genesis account was written in reaction to such a pagan mythology.
1: Yeah, you know, what I was learning in high school is that the Hebrew writers actually got their ideas from the Enuma Elish and others' ancient writings, and that's how they created the Genesis account. And so they used these discoveries to show this is where the Hebrews got their idea of Adam and Eve and the creation account. Is there any validity to that? particular argument there and how they use these texts.
2: Well, when the Babylonian texts were discovered, including the Gilgamesh epic, which talks about the flood, as well as the Elish, which talks about the creation, there was, especially among German scholars, something called the Pan-Babylonian Movement, which tended to interpret all the biblical texts in the light of Babylonian mythology. So what you read in high school is sort of a reflection of that early movement in the 20th century. Now, as we have been able to analyze these texts further, we see there are uh, great differences, as well as some similarities. For example, there's a, a strong similarity between the Gilgamesh and and uh, the story of the flood, and uh, the story of Noah and his flood, but also striking differences.
1: So, what are the weaknesses of that argument that says that, well, the Hebrews got their ideas from these ancient literatures that predate The Old Testament?
2: Well, one has to look at the possibilities of contact and the differences both in in contact and, and style to see that there are major differences in that it is not really logical to conclude that the Hebrews borrowed these ideas, because the Hebrews were monotheistic. They did not believe, uh, for example, in some of the things that are reflected in the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. One of the closest parallels between the Gilgamesh epic and Genesis 9, for example, is that after the flood, both the hero of the Bible, Noah, and the hero of the Biblical, of the Babylonian epic, Goodnepishnum, offered sacrifice to the gods, or the the god or the gods. And in both cases, we read that the god, or gods, smelled the sweet savor of the sacrifices. And you say, uh, just looking at that parallel, that that's uh, precisely the same. But if you look further at the context, it's quite different. In the Babylonian case, the gods, gather like flies around the sacrifices why because they had not been fed for the whole week of of the flood and so that's completely a foreign concept to the biblical view of of god who does not need food or, or sacrifices to sustain him
1: yes and things like that are a significant difference unfortunately for many of us students all we are pointed to are the parallels and we're not shown the big differences. We're just, the parallels are highlighted, and then we're told, you see, that's how the Hebrews got their idea of creation. See how similar they are. And without knowing these major differences, a student will look at that and say, wow, there are strong parallels here, and it seems to be a very convincing argument. That's right. So how would a student go to find, you know, the context and the rest of the story?
2: Well, there are... One should read the, the whole text of these epics. For example, Alexander Heidel, H-E-I-D-E-L, has an excellent uh, work that he calls the the Babylonian Genesis, uh, published by the University of Chicago. And there is an excellent collection in the libraries by J.B. Pritchard called 18 Eastern Texts Related to the Old Testament. And there you can read the the whole text. And probably you can find these text online nowadays
1: so basically it's like uh, studying the writings when we study american history instead of reading the interpretation of a historian who may be of a liberal bent the best advice you're giving us is to try to go to the original text itself and try to read the original text that's what you're saying isn't it Exactly. Another discovery, which I think is quite significant, is is the discovery of the Hittite nation. Wouldn't you say that's another one of those great discoveries that were made?
2: Yes and no. That is, there is a controversy about whether the Anatolian Hittites were an Indo-European group that ruled um, uh, what is today Turkey between two thousand to twelve hundred BC are the same as the Hittites that are mentioned. In the Old Testament, the children of Heth, usually Hittim, translated Hittites. Now, my good friend, the late Harry Hoffner, uh, who was the editor of the Chicago Hittite Dictionary, contributed an article on the Hittites in a book I edited called Peoples of the Old Testament World. And he did not identify the Hittites of Anatolia with the Hittites that are found in Palestine because we have no record of the Hittites. In Anatolia, going as far south as Palestine.
1: I see. So, were there other discoveries made of the Hittite library, and how it was really the forerunner of the Indo-European languages? And well, it, as far also? as the Old
2: Testament is concerned, what what is significant are the Hittite uh, covenants and laws and other parallels, in which uh, uh, Dr. Hoffner was happy to point out uh, as helping us to understand. The Old Testament as a whole, and Kenneth A. Kitchen has done a major study of all the Old Testament analogous covenants to argue that the Old Testament covenants and treaties, and and well, covenants I should say, are really dated correctly in the second millennium BC, and not as some critics have dated it to the first millennium BC.
1: Now, another discovery that I think is quite significant, and I'd love to hear your comments on it, is that Pontius Pilate plaque there in the stadium there at Caesarea Maritima. Would you consider that another significant discovery?
2: Uh, Yes, although there was never any question about the historicity of Pontius Pilate since we have him mentioned in uh, Tacitus and Suetonius and other historical documents, but That is interesting and important because it is a direct confirmation of of a famous figure in the New Testament.
1: Dr. Yamauchi, in your book you said we've uh, discovered maybe 10% of what is actually out there in biblical archaeology. Would you still hold by that statement that only about 10% of what is out there has really been discovered?
2: Well, it's hard to you know give an exact calculation uh, of, of that, but uh, there there are huge numbers of sites which still haven't been uh, excavated, and uh, sometimes the the most important excavations are made quite by accident and not uh, by uh, uh, deliberate searches for evidence. So I would say that you know there probably a majority of evidence which hasn't been discovered, which hasn't been uh, published. There are, as I mentioned before, thousands of cuneiform tablets uh, lying unpublished in museums uh, and even papyri. Uh, a famous discovery was made at the turn of the century in Egypt of a rubbish dump by Grenfell and Hunt, British scholars, called the Oxyrhynchus. Papyri, thousands and thousands of of documents. And these are now in in England uh, at Oxford University, and they still haven't been all published uh, after over a a century. Uh, So just a lot lot of evidence which is there, but which hasn't come to light because um, the number of scholars who study these are are relatively few, and um, the time and effort it takes to... Uh, translate these uh, is is enormous. Now, I should say that all of the Dead Sea Scrolls have now been published, and all the Nakamadi books have been published. So in in those two cases, uh, even after a delay of many years, they're now completely published.
1: Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found hundreds of fragments from almost all the books of the Old Testament, I believe, except for the book of Esther, along with other commentaries and rules and regulations of the society there. You know, what have the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, demonstrated in all the discoveries and everything that is released? I know there was a lot of controversy because people were withholding some information, but has any new discoveries that, you know, shed light on the first century Israel or the biblical text come as a result of the publishing of all the Dead Sea Scrolls?
2: Yes, there's an enormous amount of information that has come uh, from the publication of these scrolls. The, most scholars believe that the scrolls were written by a group known as the Essenes, who were mentioned by Josephus and Philo and Pliny the Elder, although there are some who uh, disagree with that uh, contention. But uh, the Essenes are not mentioned um, in the New Testament. Uh, there may be allusions to them. Uh, for example, when Jesus says, that you have heard it said that you shall uh, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. Well, the only group that held that position were the Essenes. The Essenes were two different groups. They were celibate that community living uh, by the Dead Sea at Qumran, Qumran, and there were also some married Essenes living um, in the town. They they held to a different calendar from the other Jews. They they followed a solar calendar. Revered the book of Enoch, which is mentioned in the book of Jude in the New Testament, and looked for a teacher. I mean, they revered a teacher of righteousness, or sometimes when compared to Jesus, but he was um, quite different from Jesus. And so uh, there are some bits and phrases which are similar to phrases in in Paul uh, sons of light versus sons of darkness, for example. Mm -hmm. And we see how different branches of Judaism there were in the time of of, uh, the New Testament, uh, more than we usually uh, reckon with.
1: Well, this has been a very fascinating show, and as we bring it to an end, Dr. Yamauchi, for those out there who don't get to access the great libraries that many of you scholars get to access, what are some works that you recommend that we reference if we want to study more in this area of biblical archaeology. You mentioned a few. Could uh, could you mention some again?
2: There are some excellent books out on both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In addition to the books I've written, for example, there is a book by Alfred Firth, H-O-E-R-T-H, from Wheaton College, called Archaeology in the Old Testament, and then a companion book, The the Archaeology in the New Testament, by his... uh, Colleague at Wheaton, uh, John McRae. Those are excellent uh, summaries.
1: And also, you mentioned several magazines that would be a good reference for uh, those of us that want to study in this area. What What are some of those magazines?
2: The one, uh, the two that i mentioned: New East Archaeology Society Bulletin, and then The Bible and the Spade, as a more conservative work.
1: Uh, Outstanding. Well, in all the studies that you have studied, the study of archaeology strengthened your faith in Christ, or has it ever really challenged your faith in Christ?
2: Well, yes, it has strengthened my faith in Christ.
1: You've been listening to an outstanding interview with one of the foremost archaeologists of our time, scholar Dr. Edwin Yamauchi professor at miami university of ohio there and dr Yamaguchi. thank you for being with us here on evidence and answers and sharing with us some of this fascinating information on biblical archaeology
0: thank you so much for tuning in once again to evidence and answers radio broadcast we hope you enjoyed the show if you find this broadcast to be a blessing please consider partnering with us Evidence & Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. Evidence & Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.